Today we're going to continue our sermon series in 1 Corinthians. And the reading for today is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 16. If you're using the Pew Bible, uh, it's going to be page 952. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 16. And we started the sermon series talking about how pride and arrogance divide the church. And then last week we talked about how God's wisdom is different than human wisdom. And today, in chapter 2, we're going to continue to see how this wisdom from God is different and distinct. Let's stand and read God's word together. And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech, my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depth of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. Please be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for the reading of your holy and inspired word. And now we are asking for your Holy Spirit to come and to accompany the preaching of your word 
that the truth of Holy Scripture might be illumined and opened to our minds, to our hearts, that we might receive it with faith and obedience. All for your glory, all for our good, all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, church, in the last couple of weeks, we have been in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. Our plan, Lord willing, is to preach through this entire book by the end of this year. But we do plan on taking uh, a little break from this series uh, right after Easter. We're going to dive back into the book of Genesis. If you recall last year, we only preached Genesis 1 to 11. We're going to go back in there and, and look at uh, essentially the life of Abraham, his whole story. Uh, and then we're going to come back uh, around mid-August to 1 Corinthians to finish it off uh, by the end of the fall. So that's the plan, Lord willing. Now, we titled this sermon series, A Letter to a Troubled Church, because that's really a fitting description for the church in Corinth. They were a troubled church. They were facing division between church members. They were facing rampant sexual immorality spreading throughout the church, going unaddressed. And of course, they were facing false teaching that was going about threatening their faith and threatening, of course, the oneness of their fellowship. And so the Apostle Paul was compelled to write a letter to them addressing all of these issues head on. But the challenge that he faced is, is, is the fact that not, even though he was their founding pastor, false teachers had entered into the church and had turned the people's allegiance away from Paul, turning them against him. And so as the theology of the Corinthians uh, eventually changed, well, their respect for Paul eventually faded. And so he, he no longer fit in their eyes what is a spiritual and mature leader. He was no longer impressive to them. These Corinthians... They were actually far too easily impressed by smooth-tongued orators who were gaining influence in the church. We're talking about guys who could wax eloquently on, on the, the, the most seemingly advanced topics. But Paul, on the other hand, as they recalled his teaching, he would just speak plainly. He would just speak straightforwardly, and he kept on returning to the same overall message of Christ crucified. He kept talking about Jesus and the cross. And so it's likely that that is part of the Corinthians' rejection of Paul. It was due to the assumption that he was essentially treating them like babies. Apparently, he doesn't think much of us. And that's why he's only feeding us spiritual milk. He's only given us Christ crucified. They thought they should be chewing on much more advanced topics that, was, that were more suitable for the spiritually mature. That's what these other teachers were offering. And yet Paul just kept talking about Christ and the cross. Of course, that grudge against Paul is really based on the assumption that the message of the cross is only for beginners. That's based on the assumption that Christ crucified is just a message that you give to, to non-Christians or to new Christians as if it's merely the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's, it's what you would teach the spiritual infants. And so these Corinthians, they wanted something more. 
They wanted deeper wisdom. They, they wanted to be intellectually challenged, intellectually inspired. They, they don't want to hear you know, the same old message of the cross over and over again. I mean, that was Paul's stick. That, that was what he was known for. And, and they just couldn't respect him for that anymore. So, as we saw in the past couple of weeks, starting off in chapter 1, there was this divisive spirit brewing within the church where factions were developing around certain personalities. And as we're going to see throughout this letter, some people in the church were elevating themselves over others, claiming to be more wise, claiming to be more spiritual than their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And all the while, they were promoting these public speakers, these orators who were able to just captivate an audience with their beautiful words, with their lofty speech, and all their eloquent wisdom. So that's the situation that Paul faced when he penned this letter to the Corinthians. And I can just imagine how relevant this situation in 1 Corinthians is to many pastors today who labor faithfully and labor tirelessly to prepare sermons to feed their flock every single Sunday. Now that we have a proliferation of online resources where you can easily watch sermons or you can easily listen to podcasts of the most popular preachers out there, the average pastor feels the pressure and the challenge of keeping his people's attention. Church members are wondering to themselves, man, why can't my pastor be as dynamic as, as that you know, popular preacher on YouTube? I, I wish the sermons at my church were, were as creative as the ones I'm seeing at, at this other church. You know, that pastor is so funny. That pastor is so engaging. And so the average pastor feels the pressure to step it up. Just preaching through the text, just trying to make application that centers around our shared hope in the gospel. It, it seems like it's not enough anymore. Preaching Christ crucified doesn't seem like it's connecting anymore. But Paul has something to say about that. Paul wants to speak into that. I mean, that is exactly why he wrote today's passage. In chapter 1, he argued that the message of the cross runs contrary to human wisdom. But here in chapter 2, we're going to see that he's very careful to explain that the gospel is not opposed to wisdom itself. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Preaching the message of the cross is wisdom, according to Paul. It's the truest form of wisdom, but, but it's a kind of wisdom that is only accessible and only discernible through the Spirit of God. That means preaching a simple gospel, it's not just for children. It's not just for the uninitiated. It's not the ABCs of the Christian faith. No, it's rather the A to Z. Christ crucified is what it's all about. That is true wisdom. That's a spiritual wisdom. That is a wisdom that comes through the Holy Spirit. So I, I think Paul would actually say that if you can't see that, like if you can't see that the message of the cross is true wisdom, and if you're wanting something more, you, you just want something deeper, you're just not satisfied with Christ crucified, then that says more about you than it does about the gospel. And so what does that say about you? Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning as we dive into the text. 
So as, as, as we go into this passage, let me, let me show you three things that Paul is, is doing within our passage. If you want to follow along, look at the outline in your bulletin. These are three things Paul's doing. First, he is embodying a spirit of weakness in his own preaching. Second, he's imparting a spiritual wisdom accessible to every single Christian. And third, he's going to draw a proper spiritual distinction between people. So that's where we're going in this message. Let's begin by considering how Paul is embodying a spirit of weakness in his preaching and how we can do the same. How we can embody that same spirit of weakness in our preaching, our teaching, just in our living out the Christian life. Now, to understand what he's teaching us here in chapter 2, we really do have to, to do a quick recap. We have to, we have to really grasp his point in chapter 1. So we saw in the last two weeks, as we, as we covered those, the, that chapter, Paul was showing how this fascination that the Corinthians had with human wisdom and, and human eloquence, how it's incompatible with the gospel. From a human perspective, the word of the cross, Christ crucified, that is utter folly. It's just foolishness. So that means if you're enamored by the wisdom of the world, then it's no wonder that you care very little for the, for the milk of the gospel and for, for those who try to feed it to you. No wonder you don't have respect for them. So in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, Paul shows how human wisdom stands in stark contradiction to the message of the cross. And then... If you look in chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, right before our passage, his point is that the cross and the message of the cross is even in contradiction to the own makeup of your membership. You yourselves were not, quote, wise according to worldly standards when you got saved. And so he's saying it, it doesn't even, it, it's not even aligned with who you are in Christ. And now in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul goes on to show how worldly wisdom is in contradiction to his own ministry as the messenger who first brought you the gospel. So the message of the cross, the makeup of your membership, and the messengers of this gospel all together express a wisdom that is very different from the wisdom of this world. And and now in order to manifest this true wisdom, this spiritual wisdom When he arrived in Corinth, Paul made an intentional decision when he showed up at their church. Listen to verses 1 to 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. His point is that he didn't come to Corinth to impress anyone. He's not going to rely on lofty speech and eloquent wisdom just to gain a following for himself. I mean, that's what professional orators tried to do. In those days, you have to understand, there were no Hollywood celebrities, right? There were no all-star athletes who were able to captivate a crowd. The closest thing you had in the first century were orators, Professional public speakers who, whose job was to entertain the masses. I mean, their goal was to impress you with the very power of their rhetoric. Now, Paul was very aware of that profession. He was very aware of that phenomenon of drawing a crowd simply by the power of your speech. And so that's why when he came to Corinth, he made a point of carrying out his ministry very differently. He came 
not to impress people, but to proclaim to people good news. He came to do the job of an appointed herald, not a professional orator. You see, an orator's driving concern is the creativity of the speech he's been hired to deliver. That's what an orator is mostly concerned about. But a herald, on the other hand, is concerned about the faithfulness of the message that he has been appointed to proclaim. And that's how Paul saw himself. He saw himself as a herald commissioned by a king to proclaim a particular message, and that's why he was decided to know nothing among the Corinthians except for the good news of Christ crucified. That's what he was focused on. Now, don't misinterpret his words there so literally as to think that he didn't teach any other lesson except the crucifixion for that whole year and a half that he spent in Corinth. That's that's every single day. He's like, all right, let's just go back to talking about the crucifixion. Crucifixion, crucifixion. that's, That's not how we should interpret that. His point is that the crucifixion, Christ crucified, was the singular focus and passion of all of his preaching and teaching. In other words, he was a Christ-centered, cross-centered preacher. That's the Apostle Paul. That defines his preaching. And in another sense, you could say he was a weak preacher. He said that when he arrived in Corinth, he embodied a spirit of weakness. Listen again to verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Now, there he's likely referring to a physical weakness that afflicted him. I mean, it's probably the same thorn in the flesh that he mentions later when he writes 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. And we don't know exactly what that thorn was for Paul, but we know it was significant enough to potentially hamper his ministry. But instead of ignoring his weakness... Instead of trying to hide his thorn from everyone, Paul saw that as an opportunity to display God's all-sufficient grace and his all-sufficient power as the Lord mightily works through him a weak servant. So as the Lord works through his weakness to do mighty things, well, then it's clear who's going to get the glory for that. And Paul knew that. So Paul saw himself, as he describes, a jar of clay. I'm just this, I'm, I'm, I'm this fragile jar of clay. And he preached out of that spirit of weakness in order to, as he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So his goal is to exalt the power of God through his weakness because he wants God to get all the glory for all the good that comes out of his preaching. He wants the Corinthians to know that your lives were changed by the power of God in the gospel, not by the power of my words or my preaching. So listen to verses 4 to 5. He says that right there. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that, for this reason, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's why he preached out of weakness. Now, let's not draw the conclusion, though, that Paul's preaching was neither powerful nor persuasive. I mean, I, I don't think it would be a fair 
description of Paul to say that he was a bad preacher. Now, I think there's evidence in the New Testament that Paul was actually a very good preacher. I mean, for example, in Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas were at Lystra, and after they had just performed, uh, through God's uh, power, they had performed this, this miraculous sign, the people, the crowds, came around them, and they mistook them for Greek gods, and they called Paul Hermes. Why? Why was he Hermes in their mind? Well, it was, we're told because he was the chief speaker between the two of them. But apparently, he was a really good speaker if he was to be mistaken for the Greek god of orators. Hermes is the Greek god of speech and oratory. And they thought, man, this guy, this guy must be Hermes in the flesh. I mean, that, that's, that's how good of a preacher he was. So let's not mistake now, let's not make the mistake of thinking that Paul's preaching was bland or that it was boring or that he didn't uh, care to persuade anyone of anything. Now, when he says here that his speech and his message were not implausible words of wisdom, what he simply means there is that his preaching lacks the, the rhetorical flair of all of the popular orators of their day. So compared to these professional speakers, he appeared weak as a preacher. But the very existence of the Corinthian church was living testimony to the real power of Paul's preaching. The fact that those who were not wise or powerful or noble according to worldly standards when they got saved, the fact that they are now converted into saints, that takes some powerful preaching. But of course, that's the kind of power that the world fails to recognize and to respect. And that really reminds me of, of what I, I read before about uh, America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who, if you're familiar with him, you know that he was a popular preacher during the Great Awakening, during uh, the, the middle of the 18th century in New England where scores and scores of people across New England were getting converted through powerful preaching. But Edwards, he would not be considered a very powerful or engaging preacher according to today's standards. He never told a joke. He rarely told a story about his family or about any of his personal experiences. He barely moved in the pulpit. He just, he just stood still, and he preached out of a full manuscript, so his head was typically down in his notes. But though he lacked natural eloquence and style, his preaching captivated hearers. A, a man in his congregation was once asked if he considered Jonathan Edwards to be eloquent, and the man answered this way. He, Edwards, had no studied varieties of the voice and no strong emphasis. He scarcely gestured or even moved, and he made no attempt by the elegance of his style or the beauty of his pictures to gratify the taste or to fascinate the imagination. But if you mean by eloquence the power of presenting an important truth before an audience with overwhelming weight of argument and with such intenseness of feeling so that the solemn attention of the whole audience is riveted from the beginning to the close and impressions are left that cannot be effaced? Well, then Mr. Edwards was the most eloquent man I ever heard speak. And I think 
I think that's the same eloquence that marked Paul's preaching. I, I hope you don't come away thinking that, that, that Paul is against eloquence, as if he's against saying, trying to say truthful things beautifully. What he's against is any approach to preaching that results in people coming away thinking, wow, what an amazing preacher, instead of thinking, wow, what an amazing savior. Paul is against that kind of worldly eloquence because he is so zealous for the Lord to get all the glory for all the good that comes out of good, powerful preaching. That's why he embodies a spirit of weakness in his own preaching. Now, now let's move on to verse 6. And this starts a new section for us, actually, in the letter. It's still very much related to the overall concern for divisions growing in the church. But there, there, is, a, there is a bit of a, of, a, of a new emphasis here. So as we saw earlier, Paul is careful to explain that, that Christianity is, is not contrary to, to wisdom altogether. It's just contrary to the kind of human wisdom that elevates the self and that leads to boasting and to a sense of superiority over others. So here in verses 16 to 13, he says that he has come to impart a spiritual wisdom that doesn't divide people, but that is actually accessible to all Christians. That's what he's trying to say here. What Paul is challenging is this idea that there are those Christian elites who possess a greater wisdom than other Christians. And that really seemed to be the overarching trouble within the church of Corinth, that there were certain church members claiming to have a higher spirituality than others, either, either because they were disciples of this or that particular teacher, or because, unlike others, they could manage living a life of celibacy, a life of, of, of uh, abstaining from sexual relations, that's in chapter 7, or because they, they, they could eat food offered to idols with a clean conscience without feeling guilty, that's in chapter 8, or because they claimed that they were given more spiritual and more spectacular gifts than others, that's going to be found in chapter 12. And so this kind of division, this kind of claiming a greater spirituality compared to others ended up creating within the church a two-tiered Christianity where we treat each other as if there are two types of Christians in the church. There are the spiritual Christians and then the carnal Christians. There, there are the spiritually mature and there are the spiritually infantile and that, my friends, is the mindset underlining all of these divisions within the church of Corinth. Now, Paul's pretty wise himself in the way that he tackles this mindset, in the way that he confronts this mindset. Because in verse 6, if you look there with me, he takes the very label that these Christian elites are using for themselves, the mature, and he applies the mature to every single Christian. The point he's making is that true wisdom and true maturity only comes by the gift of the Holy Spirit. So whoever has the Spirit in them has true wisdom and can be rightly called mature. And according to Paul's theology, that applies to every single Christian. We all share the same Spirit of God. So that means there are no two tiers there's a real sense in which every Christian is already mature. 
just as, just as we are already called saints according to chapter 1, verse 2. So what Paul is doing is that he's criticizing those who claim to be more, more mature. He's saying, you claim to be more, more mature, but you're acting like babies. You're acting like infants. And that becomes more pronounced next week as we look at chapter 3. He's saying it's infantile for you to use wisdom as a dividing line between fellow Christians, when in fact everyone who has received Christ crucified has equally received the same spiritual wisdom because we have the same Spirit of God. So what that means, friends, is that the child who has received Christ crucified is no less wise than the pastor who has a seminary education. In fact, we could say that the child, the believing child, is spiritually wiser than the unbelieving astrophysicist who has two, H- two PhDs. It's not because the kid can, advance, uh, can, can grasp advanced subjects like quantum physics. We're not claiming that this is you know, uh, some, some you know, baby genius. But it's because the believing child can look at Christ crucified and see a beautiful Savior who died for her sins to reconcile her to God, while the unbelieving astrophysicist can stare at the same cross and only see folly, or only see a myth, or only see wishful thinking on the part of religious zealots. You see, in the eyes of unbelievers, the message of the cross is not, according to Paul, a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. And it's because they were blind to spiritual wisdom. The rulers of the age in which Jesus lived, they conspired together to put him on the cross. If they were as wise as a believing child, they wouldn't have done that. That's what Paul says in verse 8. Look at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, that, that is the wisdom of the cross. For if they had, like a believing child, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So in a, in a twist of divine irony, it was their actions conducted out of blind ignorance that led to Christ crucified. And now, by the Spirit, every Christian is made equally wise and can now see Christ crucified for what it really is, our only hope in life and death. But friends, before we get high on ourselves, Paul reminds us, that we as Christians, the only reason that we can see this, the only reason that blinders for us have been taken off, it's all a gift of grace. It's all grace to us. Look at verse 7 there. When Paul speaks in verse 7 of imparting a secret and hidden wisdom of God, that, that the gospel is this secret and hidden wisdom, I, I know at first it sounds like, oh, man, oh, wow, that's something... That's something a Christian can boast in. Oh, you know, I, I, we figured out this secret esoteric knowledge that the world is, is still unable to figure out. Huh, okay, I guess we're pretty smart here. But this idea that the gospel is this hidden wisdom, the way that it's presented throughout the New Testament, it, it's not like it's this secret puzzle that only really smart people can figure out. No, instead, when... It's described this way, not in, in Paul's letters in particular. When he, when he describes the gospel as a mystery, 
It's more like a mystery that was formerly hidden from all of humanity, but now the curtain is being lifted, and now it's being revealed in time and space through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, but also now in the here and now through the active ministry of the Holy Spirit who is actively changing hearts and opening up blind eyes. So the spiritually wise in Christ, man, we have nothing to boast about. We would be blind. We would still be in the dark groping about if not for God shining his light on us and revealing these things to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 10. These things, these gospel truths, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. All right, so think about this analogy Paul is making here. Only you know your own thoughts, right? Like, only you know what you're thinking. No one else knows what you're thinking unless you speak up, unless you reveal what you're thinking to other people. Well, in the same way, no one knows what God is thinking. No one has access to his wisdom unless he speaks up and reveals it to us. And Paul's whole point is that the Spirit of God is the very one who reveals God's thinking to us. And so we're not talking here about, you know, some kind of mysterious utterance where the Spirit just kind of speaks privately to you in your head. That's actually not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the Spirit of God being the one who is ultimately teaching you through biblically faithful words coming out of the mouths of gospel preachers and teachers. That's his point if you look in verse 13. As a preacher of the gospel... He imparts spiritual wisdom through words. Paul speaks words. Whenever he opens up the Bible and he teaches, he's speaking words. But his words would be incomprehensible without the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. And we impart this in words, spoken words in this case, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Friends, here's the gist. The spiritual wisdom that Christianity deals with is not native to any one of us. It's not something that you can just figure out on your own. It is something that you have to receive by faith. And the Holy Spirit, he's the one who mediates that wisdom to you. I mean, you've probably noticed, if you've been here long enough, you probably noticed that every time I preach, I start off my preaching by praying for the Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of God's Word in order to open up the eyes of your heart so that you can be able to see and to savor the wisdom of God and, and the gospel. Because my confidence as a preacher is not in my own eloquence, but in my belief that every single Christian here, from the youngest to the oldest, has the Spirit of God in them. And so I 
in trusting. My only hope is that the Spirit of God is going to be the one who is teaching these spiritual truths to you through my meager words. That's the preacher's hope. And, and I also hope, I also hope that anyone here who is not yet a Christian would be filled by the Holy Spirit, even this very morning. That you would believe in Christ crucified for your sins and for your salvation, and that the Holy Spirit would come down and just overshadow you and just change you from the inside out. My, my hope is that the message that you once viewed as folly, as something that didn't make sense, as, as merely a story that was just passed down to you from another, that you would now see it as gloriously true and as truly your only hope in life and death. You know, I, I've been praying, I've been praying for many of you to receive the Holy Spirit and the gift of salvation for the very first time this very morning. And I, I was compelled out of a great urgency to pray that for you this week as I was preparing this message, especially when I came to Paul's words in verses 14 to 16. You see, prior to these verses, what Paul was doing, he's trying to erase lines of distinctions between Corinthian believers. They were drawing these lines between themselves, and they were creating this two-tiered mindset, and he was trying to erase that line. But now, here in verse 14, he shows us where the proper line ought to be drawn. This leads to our final observation. We see here Paul drawing a proper spiritual distinction between people. And that led me to my knees in prayer for some of you here. He mentions two types of persons. The spiritual person and the natural person. And by that, he simply means the person who has the Spirit of God, the Christian, and those who do not have the Spirit of God non-Christians. So if there is a proper distinction to be made, it's not between Christians within the church, it's between Christians in the church and non-Christians in the world. That's the distinction he's making here. Look at verse 14. Now he mentions the natural person first. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the the natural person, according to Paul, not only does not accept the message of Christ crucified, apparently he cannot accept it. He is not able to because he cannot understand it. And that's that's because he doesn't have the very one who can understand working inside of him. That is, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can understand the thoughts of God, the mind of God. But the spiritual person, the spiritual person, on the other hand, does have the Spirit. And through the Spirit's work, he doesn't just understand the message of the Christ intellectually, but he, the spiritual person is able to embrace that message personally. So what about you? What about you? What kind of person are you? Paul's saying there's two types of people out there. What kind of person are you? Now, maybe you consider yourself a spiritual person because you you do know the gospel. You you would say you believe in Christ crucified. But if you're honest with yourself, 
it doesn't feel very personal. I mean, it's just right now a, a story for you. It, it's a teaching that was handed down to you from others. You know it's important to them. You know their life is centered on it, but it doesn't mean all that much to you, if you're honest. So let me speak right now directly to, to the children and the youth that are with us this morning. I want to speak to you in particular, those of you who have been coming to church with your parents. I think it's so important for those of you here coming to church with your parents, I think it's so important for you to realize that no one ever grows up Christian. Like, sure, you can grow up in a Christian household. I mean, you can grow up in a Christian church like this, but you can't grow up Christian. If you think you're a Christian just because you've grown up here in this church, well, then you very well could be fooling yourself. I mean, your presence, of course, is welcomed here. But your presence here is no sure sign that you are saved. No sure sign that you have spiritual life. What you need to focus on instead is not just being here. You need to focus on the word of the cross. You need to focus on Christ crucified and ask yourself, what's my reaction whenever I hear the message of Christ crucified? When I hear someone preach or teach or share about Jesus' great love for us, about how he took my place on the cross, died for my sins, how he rose again on the third day, and now he grants new life to anyone who would receive him by faith and to receive his promised Holy Spirit. When I hear that message, do my eyes glaze over? When I hear that message, do, do, I, do I start looking at my phone because, you know, this part's kind of boring? Or I'm thinking it has no relevance to me? I, I, do I assume that that part of the sermon is directed at someone else? Or when you hear that, does your heart get warmed? Does, does it grant you comfort even though, yeah, you've heard it a thousand times? Do you appreciate being reminded of what Christ has done for you on the cross because you know how prone you are to forget about it, how prone you are to take it for granted. The point of our passage is that that second reaction is only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. That second reaction only comes through a second birth where you are born again of the Spirit. Otherwise, you would still be a natural person and you're still in need of a new birth. And so if you're a youth and you're here with us, and if you're not so sure if you are a spiritual person, a person with the Holy Spirit, if you're not sure if you've actually received this new birth, well, then you should really talk to, to Minister Stanley uh, because I know he's holding a baptism class this afternoon. This afternoon, he's going to be holding a baptism class. And even if that's not even on, if baptism isn't on your radar right now, it's not like you're sure if you want to get baptized. But I think that class is still a place for you to go because that class is going to talk about the gospel. It's going to talk about how do you know if you are a Christian? How do you know if you're saved? And so I think you should really be there. If you're a youth and you're wrestling with this, you should be there. Even if you're not ready about baptism, that's fine. You should still go to that and hear 
more about the gospel and how do you know if you really are a spiritual person, a person with the Holy Spirit? Well, church, the big takeaway, though, of course, is that the mystery of the gospel, of Christ crucified, has been graciously given to us, graciously revealed to us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, the big takeaway here in light of division within the church, whether we're talking about, you know, division within an ancient first century church or division within our 21st century church, we need to remember that all of us are equally spiritually wise in Christ, that we can all see Jesus through the same eyes of faith. And so let's stop thinking and let's stop acting like natural persons driven by the spirit of this world to to draw lines and distinctions between fellow Christians all for the sake of feeling superior over others in order to just feel better about ourselves. And that's usually what's driving that, that sense of insecurity, a sense of arrogance, wanting to feel better about yourself, and so that's why you make lines between people. The proper distinction that Paul says to be made is a distinction between the believing church and the non-believing world. But even that distinction is not in order to make us arrogant, to make us think we're better than the world, but to give us a heart of humility and a heart of gratitude. Grateful that the Spirit has graciously revealed to us the mystery of Christ crucified. And then let's be compelled to share that mystery to the non-believing world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... This message, the message of Christ crucified, and I pray that by your Spirit, you will grant us understanding. And again, not just intellectual understanding, but a feeling, personal sense that we are loved by Christ crucified, who did that for us and for our salvation. Oh Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, will you rise as you are able, as you respond?